Good morning. Exodus 5, 1 through 21. If you want to join with me on the Bibles that are in your pews, it's on page 58. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave his order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with the straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what the Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So people scattered, scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble for, to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foremen went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen realized they were in trouble when they were told you were not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Thank you, Jim. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so I'm glad that you're here. This is the time of year when we like to get away, right? This is the time of year when we like to get maybe out of the heat, Right? A little bit hot today. Sorry, it's so hot in here today. Uh, if I pass out, which I'm prone to do, uh, just put my feet up and give me some salt. Give me a couple minutes. I'll be, I'll be right back at it. Uh, but yeah, we're glad that you're here because this is a time of year when people often will go away, get away, get out of here. Uh, how many of you here could, could use a break, could use to just get away? Yeah, come on. Yeah, I know it, right? So this is a time of year when we try to get away. My, uh, my wife and I actually... We are going to be getting away for a few days this week, as our 10-year anniversary is this week. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. 
So we're going to be getting away, and I'm, I'm thinking about 10 years ago when we got away, and we went away for a week. We went to Cancun, and we stayed at this, uh, this resort that had our, our we, we had two balconies in our, our room, two different balconies from two different rooms. We were like 15 feet from the ocean. Uh, it was one of these all-inclusives, right, with, and it wasn't the cheap stuff, right? You know, you can get the, the all-inclusives with the cheap stuff. No, 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 no. This was the, this was the top shelf stuff. This was the good stuff all the way through for a week. I remember we would go out on the beach each morning, and, and they would bring us these little chocolate croissants first thing in the morning, and they were so uh, unbelievable. Actually, to be completely honest with you, there's no way we could have afforded to, to go there, uh, but here's a little tip. If you want a cheap vacation, here's what you do. You look to see where the swine flu has been, and you go like three months later. That's what happened. The swine flu had gone through there, killed the industry. Nobody wanted to go there, uh, and so they had all these great deals, like our flight was free, and it was half price for the hotel. Anyway, so we got into this unbelievable place. And, and to be honest with you, going on that trip was, it was restorative, right? It was restorative. Uh, it was, I, I, would, I would say it was almost salvific. I don't think it's a coincidence that the word vacation rhymes with salvation. Today we are continuing in our series on the book of Exodus, and the title of this series is Exodus. So we're doing a a series on the book of Exodus, and the title of the series is Exodus. Really clever, right? Uh, Usually, when I do a series on a book, I'll come up with some some kind of, you know, hopefully clever title, right? When we did Ezra, the title was Come Back, you know, Come Back. Uh, Then we did the book of Romans, and the title was Good News, right? So often trying to find uh, some title that will sort of capture the essence of the book and the series. And the thing about the book of Exodus is that, well, that's what it's about. So the title of this series is Exodus because that's what the book Exodus means. It's It's about deliverance. It's about God coming to rescue us. And one of the things that we have seen throughout this series, and we find it in particular in chapter 3, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, is that God wants us to see him primarily as a God of salvation. In other words, when we hear his name, just his name, the Lord. So when we, when we hear the name, the Lord, God wants us to think of salvation. And that's what we discover in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus, where where. Moses has this encounter with God, and, and God tells Moses what he's going to do, that he's going to rescue the people of Israel who are in slavery in Egypt, and he's going to use Moses to do this. And they get into this conversation, Moses is like, well, who do I, when I talk to him, who do I, who do I tell them is doing this? And he says, the Lord, that's the, the word that we use, the, translated in our, in our Bibles, the Lord, that's my name. And it Sometimes when you read it, you can get the impression that it's like the first time that they've ever heard the name the Lord. But no, more than likely what it's, what it's getting at, not that this is the first time that Moses or the Israelites had come to hear the word the Lord. What's new is that God is associating a new meaning with it. That what he wants is when they hear the name the Lord, he wants them to think of salvation 
of exodus, of deliverance, that when we hear the word God, when we hear the word the Lord, the first thing that we should think of at the very core of who this God is, is that he is a God of rescuing. He is a God of salvation. Think of it, think of it this way. I mean, there are, when you think of famous people, there are often famous people when you say their name, one word will come to mind, right? So if I say the Wright brothers, we think airplane, right? I think. Uh, if I say Mark Zuckerberg, right? Facebook. Uh, if I say George Lucas, exactly, right? Yeah, my son's been singing George Lucas's Star Wars theme song for the last three months nonstop. That's what we think of, right? We think of Star Wars. Uh, how about this one? If you know who this is, there's going to be a word that you're going to think of. If you know who this is, Takeru Kobayashi. Hot dogs, exactly. This guy, this guy is the hot dog eating champion of the world. He can eat 60 hot dogs in two minutes, right? That's what he's known for, making his mama proud, right? <laughs> hot dog, okay, that's two words. But it's, you know, we can think of these people where there's one or two words that we think of as being sort of the essence of who they are. And what the book of Exodus wants us to see is that when we think of the name of the Lord, salvation is what we should first think of. And, you know, one of the things that this sort of implies, you need to think about this, if, if God is a God of salvation, there's a lot implied in that. One of the things that's implied in that is if God is a God of salvation, it implies that, you know what, sometimes things are going to go wrong. Because for there to be salvation, there's got to be a problem in the first place. So we shouldn't necessarily be surprised when things go wrong, right? Thinking about the fact that God is a God of salvation, right, this brings us once again to think differently about, well, what kinds of questions do we ask of God? I've said this before, right? As Christians, when you come to understand God as a God of salvation, we no longer ask, why is this happening? If something is going on in your life, we ask, how long until it's over? Just that subtle difference in how we approach and think about God by realizing that He is a God of, of salvation. It's not, not why is this happening, but how long. In other words, I know that you're going to come. I know that you're going to rescue me. I know that you're going to deliver me. It's not, a, it's not a question of why or how. It's, it's how long. Understanding God to be the God of salvation changes the way we think and even the way we approach God. Now, when we talk about salvation, and this is something that emerges just from looking at this passage, we need to understand that there's a holistic nature to salvation. In other words, salvation is not just simply going to heaven when you die, right? Salvation is all-encompassing. In fact, again, with this story of the people of Israel, it's about them literally being rescued from slavery in Egypt. And so we need to think about God as a God of salvation who brings salvation in the, this rich, full, holistic sense that that God wants us to flourish, wants us to, to experience the fullness of what it means to live. And salvation and deliverance sort of brings us into this state of human flourishing. Now, because of this, because of this holistic nature of this deliverance that comes, one of the things we should not be surprised to discover is that God often uses earthly means to bring deliverance. God often uses earthly means to bring salvation. And, and, and actually, that's what 
goes on in this passage, as we'll see later, but, but I, I, I want to draw attention to how this takes place in the story of the people of Israel by going back a little bit further. Because as we come to the book of Exodus, we discover that they're, they're in trouble. But if you go back to the book of Genesis, what you discover at the end of the book of Genesis is that God uses earthly means to rescue them from something else. He rescues them from a famine. You go back to the book of Genesis and a famine comes across the land. And to make the, a long story short, God uses the nation of Egypt and uses the Pharaoh. Uh, to rescue them out of this famine that they were forced with, uh, that the whole region was in. So God used Egypt, used this earthly means of Egypt to rescue them and to deliver them from their plight. So we should recognize that God will often use earthly means to bring about a kind of salvation. So for example, if, if you are in financial straits, you're, you're in a hole financially and you you pray to God, right? And what you're doing when you're praying, you're praying for a kind of salvation. God, rescue me, deliver me from this. And oftentimes, how will God answer that? Well, he'll give you a job. He'll give you a new job that, that helps you uh, to, to better be able to, to pay the bills. He'll use those earthly means to bring a kind of salvation. Uh, look, let's be honest, food. God uses food to save us from death every day. That's sort of provision that rescues us uh, from, from death. And, you know, in, in other words, when you become a Christian, you don't just say, I don't need to eat anymore. I'll just pray that the Holy Spirit, you know, give, gives me uh, good blood sugar levels. Yeah, the Holy Spirit will take care of that. Yeah, the Holy Spirit will take care of that by providing food for you, using earthly means in order to bring that kind of deliverance. And with food, it's not just, you know, sort of nutritional salvation, but there's an existential salvation too, am I right? When you, when you, when you have something really good, it's, it's I mean, I, what makes me think of this is my dad. Uh, growing up in my household, whenever we would go out to eat and there was something my dad really liked, he, he would always do the same thing. He'd go, he'd go, oh, out of this world. That's always what he'd say, right? And this sort of sense of that this food is, it's, I mean, some of you, you have your first sip of coffee in the morning and it's like you've been delivered. You've been rescued. Salvation has has come upon you, right? So God will use earthly means to bring deliverance, to bring salvation. As I said before, uh, vacation rhymes with salvation. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. Again, when my wife and I went to Cancun, uh, we experienced a kind of salvation through the experience there. And, and, and really, I think salvation is not, you know, you're not stretching it because, I mean, even the, the people who run the place, who own the place, I think they sort of had that in mind. The name of the establishment, the name of the, the resort was La Parezo del Bonita, the paradise of the pretty. I mean, they even used the word paradise in the name of the, of the resort as if to say, yeah, you come here and it's, there are salvific overtones to this. Things. God can use material things to, to save us. I remember when I, when I bought my first guitar, I remember thinking to myself, I have been delivered from boredom forever. I, I remember that. I, I distinctly remember because I think, you know, kids, my kids, you know, I'm bored, Daddy, I'm bored. And I remember I was like that. And then when I got my first guitar and I started playing, I realized I don't think I'm ever going to be bored again. I have been delivered from what God will use material Things. God uses relationships, human relationships, 
in a sort of salvific sense. How many of us know someone who, before they came to know somebody, they were kind of always down, right? Uh, always maybe a little bit bitter and, uh, you know, just had sort of that edge to them. And then they met that someone. It's like they're a totally different person. You know, they're, they're joyful and they're, they're optimistic. So these sort of salvific overtones to it. Look, sex itself has salvific overtones to it. If you, don't, if you don't believe me, listen to what the Bible says. It's Song of Solomon. Listen to this words describing this kind of physical intimacy. How delightful is your love, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates and choice fruits with henna and nard, nard and saffron. I have no idea what those things are. Calamus and cinnamon. With It sounds fantastic, though. Uh, with every kind of incense tree and myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind. Come, south wind. Blow on my garden. Let its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And honestly, if you take the imagery that is used in Song of Solomon and compare it to some of the imagery that is used like in Isaiah describing the new heavens and the new earth when God's going to renew and restore all things, it's like the same kind of imagery. There's a sense in which even physical sexual intimacy has these sort of salvific overtones to it. God uses earthly means to bring salvation. But here's the thing, and here's what this passage in Exodus, taken in the context of the whole narrative, points us to is this. That which God uses to save us will enslave us if it becomes our God. That which God uses to save us will enslave us if it becomes our God. You see, again, think about this. How did the Israelites end up in Egypt? Egypt was used by God to save them, to save them from this famine. But then over the course of time, they became enslaved. And what's going on in this passage is simply this. There is a battle between God and Pharaoh to see who is Israel's God. Who is their God? And as the Pharaoh begins to take the place of God, this is how they become enslaved. Look, look, at, this, uh, look at this battle going on here. In, in verse chapter, excuse me, verse 2, Pharaoh said, so, okay, so Moses and Aaron come before the Pharaoh, right? This is the, this is the, big, the big scene, you know, we, we're getting out of here. Let, let us out of here. The Lord says that we should, we're, we're allowed to get out of here, right? And, and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? Now, when the Pharaoh says, who is the Lord, 
He's not probably saying that he doesn't have any idea who this God is. The Israelites had lived in Egypt for hundreds of years, so presumably he knew who uh, the Lord was, but um, it's a little bit like this, and you're gonna, you guys are not going to like me for using this analogy. I'm trying to use these analogies less and less, but him saying that about God would be a little bit like Tom Brady saying, who are the New York Jets? It's not like he doesn't know who they are. It's just like, who are the New York Jets, right? I mean, who, who, who are they to challenge my authority? That's kind of what Pharaoh is saying about God. There is this rivalry going on between Pharaoh and the Lord as to who is Israel's God. We, we see this just by comparing the language that is used. Verse 1, it says, uh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Then in verse 10, it says, this is what Pharaoh says. And in the Hebrew, it's even more similar. It's just drawing this out. The Lord says this. Pharaoh says this. They are being compared to see who really is God. Uh, Verses 8 and 15 uh, says this. Require them, Pharaoh says, require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Okay, now who are they crying out to? Well, that's an interesting question. If you go to verse 15, it says, Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Now, this is one case where uh, the NIV translation, I think for the sake of, I don't know, flow or something, is not helpful. Because when it says appealed, it's the same word as cried out. It's saying they're crying out to Pharaoh. And so what you discover earlier on in the book, you find them crying out to the Lord. Here they're crying out to Pharaoh. And so there's this question going on in the hearts of Israel. Who do they actually look to? Who do they think actually has the power to save or to kill? Now, here's what you got to understand. That which is your God is that which you think has the power to give you life or death. That's what your God is. Your God is whatever it is that has the power over you to either provide blessing and honor and salvation and goodness, or if it doesn't, if it's not there for you, then, then you'll die. And so they've, they're kind of getting to the point here where they don't realize, excuse me, it's not Pharaoh who ultimately has the power for you to live or die. It's the Lord. You see, this is why when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what it's saying. The fear of the Lord, it's another way of saying, look, you are God. You are the one who has complete power over all things. Now, what we need to realize is in the context of the story of the Bible and and who God is, when we come to realize this is a God of love and a God of grace, then that fear turns to joy when you realize he has the power to kill you, but all he wants to do is take care of you and love you. But it's that recognition that he's the one who has the power. So there's this battle going on in the hearts of the Israelites as to who they think actually has power over them. Again, there's this rivalry. Who is their God? Uh, In verse 18, Pharaoh says, now get to work. Earlier on, uh, you you find, uh, let's see here. Verse 18 says, get to work. Now, what we need to realize is, What he's saying, get to work, literally what it says is, get back to serving. Pharaoh's saying, get back to serving. Now, what's interesting is if you go uh, back to chapter 1, you find 
similar situation where it's talking about the Israelites and their plight, their slavery uh, under Pharaoh. And listen to what it says in verse 14. It says, they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in their fields, in the fields. And in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Now, what's interesting is if you were to take this very literally, here's really more what it would say. The same word is used three times. They made their lives bitter with hard service in brick and mortar and with all kinds of service in the fields. In all their hard service, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So it's the same word. They they were being forced to serve Pharaoh. Now, if you turn to chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, there is this famous uh, passage where, let me just read it to you. The Lord said to Moses, so now the Lord is talking to Moses about what he's going to do. He says, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before the Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you uh, the power to do. And then, moving on, verse 22, he says, then say to the Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. What's interesting is that the word worship there in the original is the word serve. It's the same word. To worship God is to serve him. And so there is this battle going on in terms of who is Israel going to serve. Are they going to serve Pharaoh or are they going to serve the Lord? Now, how does this play out in our own lives? It's simply this. The same battle goes on in our hearts every day. The same battle as to which God we are going to serve. The same battle to determine what is it that we really think has the ability to give us life. And here's what happens. Things that God may have used in our lives to bless us, he may have used them to bring salvation, now actually become rivals to God himself. So, for example... We might praise God. Thank you, Lord, for this new house that you have. But then over time, that house becomes your God. And now it's that house that you, you couldn't possibly imagine living without that house. It's almost, though you'd never say it, in your mind you'd never say this, but in your heart it's almost like, I need this more than I need God. The very things that God uses to bring salvation, can enslave us when they become our gods. Another example, we say grace at dinner. Dear Lord, thank you for this food. But then food becomes our God. Food becomes the thing which we look to for salvation rather rather than looking to God himself. And here's what we need to discover when this happens. When something other than God becomes our God, the demands for salvation get more and more demanding. The demands for salvation get more and more demanding. In order to experience the provision of that God, the demands get more and more demanding. You see, this is exactly what happens literally here with the people of Egypt. As as Pharaoh becomes more and more their master, what happens? He starts working them harder and harder and harder. 
And he says, you know, they, they, they've got to make bricks to, to do these, uh, these big building programs that he has. And he starts, you know, the quota, right? The quota is when Pharaoh says, okay, if you do this, then I will provide for you. I will care for you. And so the, the demands for that keep getting harder and harder and harder, right? So uh, the first... Uh, they provide straw for the Israelites to make the bricks. But then the Pharaoh's like, nope, nope, you've got to get the straw yourself, but you have to build just as much as you did before, before I will be okay with you, before I will then provide for you. And in a similar sense, here's what happens when anything other than God becomes our God, is that the, the demands that it requires of us for us to experience the same kind of joy goes up and up and up. So you get that house, right? And we've talked about this. This is certainly the case with material things. You get that new house, right? And it's just, it's salvific. You're so happy. You're so excited, right? But, but over time, here's the thing with, with material possessions is that over time, the joy that comes from that house tends to diminish. It's not the same as what it was when you first, you first got it, right? And so what do we need? Well, now I need a bigger house. Now I, now, now I need more. In order to get that same level of salvation, now I need more. And so you, you, you get a bigger house. But what happens? Now you've got to work more and more because the mortgage payments don't stay the same. And so the God of materialism demands more of you before you can experience that same level of salvation. Or, or even if, right, even if you, you, you get the house uh, and, and you, you don't want more necessarily, but boy, you can't give that up. And so what if you get this house and then your business tanks? Now you are enslaved to that house. You'll do anything. I mean, you're, you're working late night. You're, you're whatever. You're, you're giving up time with the family. You're giving up whatever it is because you can't, you can't let go of that house because, well, you're, the, there's fear there. It has power over you of life and death. It has power over you in terms of your joy and your salvation, but you have to keep working harder and harder and harder to meet the quota. This happens with material things. This can happen with relationships. If the God of relationships becomes your God, here's what will happen. You'll never be satisfied with the relationship you have. God brings somebody into your life. God brings somebody into your life and as a source of salvation, brings them in and, and, and changes your life, right? But if the God of relationships becomes your God, over time, the God of relationships will be more demanding and the God of relationships will say, no, you need more than that. The quota goes up. You need more than, than that. And so then you find yourself looking to others, looking elsewhere, all because the demands keep going up to experience that same level of salvation. Success. Success. God blesses you with success. And it feels good. There's a sense of you're flourishing and praise God for this success that I've had. But if the God of, if success becomes your God, the quota will keep getting bigger and bigger. You'll never be satisfied with your level of success. At first you will, but then the demands will go up in order for you to experience the same level of freedom that you had. Or, or even if it stays the same, you will kill yourself to make sure that you don't lose that level of success. This reminds me of 
uh, a friend of mine who <laughs> he talks about, uh, he sort of worked in the corporate world and he knew these individuals that had been very successful. And then after, uh, after they retired, he noticed that like these four guys, they, they retired and like three of them all died within three years. And he's convinced it was because once that, that success was gone, that had become their God. They had nothing left. When anything other than God becomes your God, it enslaves you and forces you to work harder and harder. And listen, here's the thing. The longer you are enslaved to it, the harder it is to get out. Notice this in verse 9. Pharaoh says, make them work harder. Or excuse me, make the work harder for the men that they, so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. It's a really interesting statement. So Pharaoh tells his people, keep, work them harder and harder and harder and harder so they won't pay attention to the lies. Now, what he means by lie is the truth. The truth is, the truth is, no, this isn't a lie. God has come to rescue them. God has come to save them. That isn't a lie. But Pharaoh wants to convince them that it's, that it's a lie. So he's like, just work them harder and harder and harder so they get to the point where they, ne- they just can't really believe that life would be better by following God. See, that's what happens. When we get enslaved to something that becomes our God, in our hearts, we just start to feel like, no, I'm not really sure that following God is going to lead to a better life. Even though you're killing yourself, you're, you're worn out, you're exhausted because the demands get harder and harder, it gets harder and harder for you to realize, no, no, that's actually true. If you follow God, there's freedom there. But the longer you're enslaved, the harder it is to get out. Friends, we can just sum it up this way. Here, here's, what, here's what it comes down to. When anything other than God becomes our God, we are required to carry the burden for salvation. When anything other than God becomes our God, we are required to carry the burden of salvation. But the heart of the Christian faith, where this narrative ultimately goes is this, in the person of Jesus, God himself has come to carry the burden. You see, what's going on with the people of Israel is they're getting worked harder and harder and harder and harder, and they're being worked closer and closer to who knows what it ultimately leads to. Most scholars agree that it seems like Pharaoh's ultimate goal is to ultimately kill them. So they are on this path where they're getting worked harder and harder and harder and harder, and ultimately it's going to kill them. In other words, the Israelites are living out what Christ came to do for all of us. The heart of the Christian faith is that we aren't the ones that are called to to bear that. We aren't the ones that are called to, to, to carry the burden of our own salvation. The heart of the Christian faith is that God himself came down and in the person of Jesus Christ, he freely submitted himself and gave of his life and carried the ultimate burden all the way to death so that we wouldn't have to. In fact, we see this here. Verse 23. God says, let my 
excuse me, verse 22. God says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go. Again, the heart of the Christian faith is that the person of Jesus, he became the representative of Israel. He became the firstborn son, and he carried and bore the burden so that we don't have to. Pharaoh, here's what Pharaoh says. Here's what Pharaoh says, and all other gods say to us when we look to them for salvation. Harder, harder, harder. More, 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 more. What does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble humble and gentle in heart. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why is his burden light? Because he bore the burden himself. Friends, my question for each one of us this morning is how many of us are here today? We are weary and we are burdened. Not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. If we are emotionally and spiritually burdened, that is a sign, there's a very good chance that we're looking to something other than God to be our God. And what we're finding is that when we do so, the demands just get harder and harder and harder. I want you to think about this morning, what, what, what are those gods in my life? What are those things that I'm really looking to for salvation? What are those things where you say, I, I can't change that. I can't change my approach to that because if I do that, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, God is the one who has the power, the sovereignty to rescue you. Cast your burdens onto Jesus instead. Can you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning. We praise you that you are a God who loves us so much that you came to bear the burden of salvation. God, I know that right here in this room, beginning with myself, God, we so often look to other things as our source of salvation. Time and time again, Lord, we discover that they can only harm us. But whatever immediate satisfaction we find from looking to them ultimately enslaves us, God. God, pull the blinders off of our hearts. Give us the courage to step out in faith, turning to you and trusting in you alone. I pray this in Jesus' name.